Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and I hope you've recovered from the New Year celebrations. We've got another episode for you with our panel of Irish Times journalists, Jennifer O'Connell, Kitty Holland and spoken word artist Felicia Olisania, aka Fella Speaks. Now we always like to look ahead at the year for women, but of course this year so far, The Diary of the World is pretty empty at this stage, but the big story of 2021 will, of course, be the vaccine for COVID-19, the logistics, the impact and how it's going to help with getting back to normal, whatever normal was. And it seems very far away now. Our panel anyway have loads of thoughts on that and on the future of work and on issues such as image based sexual abuse legislation and the end of direct provision. Well, the movement to end it anyway, which is certainly gathering pace. So here you have it, our look ahead to 2021 and how that year will pan out for women. I think I speak for all of you when I say that next year really can't come soon enough. And thanks to COVID-19, vaccine breakthroughs and the hard work of so many people, frontline workers, teachers, scientists, public health officials, and of course us, we the people, it should bring more normalcy, a new normal as it may be. If 2020 has taught us anything, maybe it's a bit of humility about trying to forecast the future. But there are some things we do know. There is a vaccine. In fact, there is a very nice selection of them coming on stream. We've adapted to living in a pandemic, more or less, and managed to keep the show on the road in ways we would never have thought possible. So where are we headed? For this podcast, I'm joined once again by Irish Times journalists Jennifer O'Connell and Kitty Holland and performance artist, poet and writer Felicia Olusanya this time to look ahead to what's in store in 2021. Now, Jennifer, coming to you first, because this is your big subject. This is a story you've been diving into over the pandemic months. And a couple of days ago, indeed, you remarked that every time someone is interviewed on the vaccine rollout, the timeline for mass vaccination seems to move a bit further out. And I said, snap, in my head. That's exactly how I felt too. What's going on? I think initially we it, it was greeted with so much enthusiasm all over the world. And I think we forget that scientists are people too and, you know, politicians are people too and they've been dying for this vaccine to come as much as we have. So there was this huge degree of excitement. And in one of those very early interviews, I think it was somebody from the WHO said that we could expect life to return to normal by kind of spring. And we immediately all grasped onto spring. Great. I actually went and booked flights at Easter in a fit of wild optimism. I was like, I'm getting off the rock and we're going away. And then reality kicked in as it does. And I think we realised the logistics involved. The most uh, successful vaccine, as we all know, we've all become 
experts in immunology and vaccines overnight is the Pfizer-Moderna one, which is 90% effective. But it's also the trickiest logistically to to be got out because it needs to be kept at minus 70 degrees. Um, And obviously not every pharmacy on every street corner has a freezer capable of storing vaccines at minus 90 degrees. So I think a degree of caution has had to creep into some of the conversations. At the same time, some of the timelines that have been mentioned in more recent times are, are, are a bit puzzling. You know, we've had the Taoiseach saying that it will be kind of next summer before we see a mass rollout of vaccines. Um, And that does seem to me to be cautious. I think maybe they're managing our expectations. That's certainly what I hope is the case. Oh, Lord. Um, What's your best guess? I would say, and I think the key thing to remember, Cathy, is we don't all need to be vaccinated. You know, once they start to get the most vulnerable members of society um, and older populations vaccinated, then the rest of us who are less at risk can start to return to some degree of normality. Uh, But I think we're going to see it. It's going to be a frustratingly slow process. um, And I think we'll probably see, we'll potentially even see, I know the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has said, by the end of this year, we might see some of the very first vaccinations done. But I think realistically, that'll be a very small number of people. Um, Mm. Maybe up to 5,000 people might get vaccinated over the next couple of months. And and the rest of us are just going to have to wait our turn. Um, it'll it'll involve how fast Pfizer can can produce the vaccines. The AstraZeneca one is probably easier to get out, um, but it's slightly less effective. So it may be a case that they decide certain populations should get the Pfizer one because it works better in their age group, uh, and the AstraZeneca one might be better for for example. We know that it's probably slightly more effective in older people, so maybe that's the way it should be done. So all of this still has to be worked out. And I think next year, the first half of next year is going to be a lot of lobbying from a lot of different groups pushing their own interests forward and a lot of rows about who should get the vaccine. And I suspect some logistical hiccups as well, because, you know, the HSE's strong suit and the Department of Health strong suit throughout the pandemic has not necessarily been logistics when you've seen some of the difficulties that we've had with contact tracing and and with testing and that kind of thing. So I can imagine that it, it seems inevitable that with the most massively complex public health operation in global history, that there will be some hiccups. And then the other side of it will be the anti-vax campaigners. We've already seen one one fifth of people saying that they're unlikely to want to get the vaccine. Um, And those are not all anti-vaxxers. Those are people who just have probably quite legitimate concerns and questions about the vaccine. So there'll have to be a huge public information campaign as well that we'll have to try and get out ahead of some of the wilder conspiracy theories on social media. So I, I suspect that we're going to be talking about this and very little else for the next six months. Yeah. Kitty, it's been psychologically the, the announcement of vaccines has, has, been a, has been a game changer, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, yeah, it's giving people a, a, a sense of that the end is in sight. And um, I think even this, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how Christmas is going to go and that kind of thing. But I think even the fact that the, the vaccine might come, you know, March, April, people are feeling, well, we can we don't have to celebrate a huge Christmas. We can, you know, keep the head down and stick with the rules. And like, I would always see my father over Christmas. He lives in Derry and we're just kind of going to go, look, you know, we'll, we, we might, we, we were just talk of meeting for lunch, but actually I'm waiting to hear what's going to come out of the, uh, the, the, the North health guidelines. But yeah, I, mean, I think there's a sense that we can, um, we can get through this Christmas and that there is hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think, yeah, I think it's huge because I think if we were facing into, have we another, Who? I mean, could we have another 20, another year of this? I think people would be in absolute despair. Felicia, do you think we're heading into, what What does the new normal look like to you? Because it will be a new normal for, for a while. 
Yeah, um, I think it would be a lot of like um, discomfort um, as much as we all are, are really excited to kind of get back out there and have everything kind of go back to the way it used to be. I think because of the impact uh, of this year, we won't know how to be with um, with people as much anymore. Um, you already see people have adjusted to social behaviors that we've only learned in the past six to seven months. And it's been it's cases like, oh, Suddenly, you know, you can't touch each other's spoons or like that halting when you're usually you would run for a hug um, post lockdown or whatever. Um, so I think the new normal would be that would cause a lot of anxiety, actually. Um, and I think it would kind of mirror um, what we've been doing already quite, quite, you know, quite literally. It's going to mirror what we're currently doing. And I think it'll take a lot of adjusting. I don't know what the new normal could possibly be, but I do know it's going to be us being really careful with each other. And that might take a lot of fun out of the, oh, we're finally outside moment. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> Jennifer, working from home, is that is that going to be part of the new normal? Is that is that established now as a good idea for a lot of people? You know, I think that that is kind of the fulcrum around which so much else will will depend. You know, when we talk about the new normal, and I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we told ourselves that our lives were going to change in unimaginable ways, that our cities, I think I, I actually wrote an article about how our cities were going to be reimagined. We would all live very differently. We would have much more leisure time, much less commuting. Um, and, and we value community much more and all of that kind of thing. We'd value the places where we live. Rural Ireland would be reinvigorated. And I think some of that could still happen. But in reality, it'll come down to really whether or not employers reckon that they can get the same kind of productivity out of remote working workforce as they can if they drag people into a glass box in the city centre. Um, and I think the data on that looks very favourable for the people who have enjoyed remote working and would like to keep remote working. I think that a lot of international data suggests that it has actually been a very successful experiment that we might never have had the opportunity to do otherwise. Um, but I think when we talk about the new normal, I think it's going to be much more of a kind of a, a creeping our way back into the daylight kind of phenomenon. I don't think we're going to wake up on V-Day after we've all been vaccinated and go brilliant and like throw the masks on a big bonfire in the back garden or anything like that. I think... Um, you know, I think masks might never fully disappear. I think it has been quite nice having a winter with no tummy bugs and no flus coming into the house. The influenza has actually just more or less vanished globally this year, which is the first time ever that that's happened. Um, I think social distancing won't stay because I think it is so fundamentally alien to who we are to stay apart from each other. We'll be anxious to get together again. But I was speaking to somebody who's interested in behavioral economics this week for a different article. And, you know, he was sort of making the point to me, like, will people feel the same about pubs? Will they see them as kind of fundamentally a bit icky now, you know, a bit kind of dirty somewhere that they're not really sure they want to hang out or will they be dying to get back into the pub? And I think the longer it goes on, the longer it takes the vaccination to get to us, uh, the more embedded some of our new habits will be. And, and that's not all for the bad. But yeah, I think like a lot of people are feeling what Kitty describes, which is kind of being quite content with their changed lifestyles. And, you know, I interviewed a young woman um, this week who was, 29 at the start of the pandemic and lost her job um, got a reasonably good redundancy payment and uh, moved back home to rural Ireland where she's from. So she's a much cheaper cost of living. Uh, and due to the fact that she got the pandemic unemployment payment and a redundancy payment and suddenly her social life just collapsed and she wasn't going out for dinner three nights a week or four nights a week. She finds herself at the end of the year with enough money for a deposit on a house now in her savings account, which was she couldn't have imagined that happening in January. 
Uh, and she, I said to her, do you think that this is a stage of life that you're at? You're 29, that this might have happened anyway. And she said, well, I think the pandemic has accelerated it. And I think a lot of my friends feel the same. We're not really interested in living in Dublin anymore. Uh, we'd prefer to you know, have a comfortable home with space to have an office and a little bit of a garden than you know, we, we're prepared to sacrifice to live in a maybe smaller apartment closer to the city centre and closer to the action. So I think that's really interesting. If even a percentage of the workforce makes those big kind of life changing decisions, it could have really positive benefits. It could release some of the pressure on Dublin and, and it could kind of reinvigorate rural Ireland. But as I said, a lot of it will depend on whether employers are willing to allow, and it does take a bit of a leap of faith, I think, by employers, if they're willing to allow their workforces to choose whether or not they work remotely and how much they work remotely. Kitty, you're staying in Dublin anyway. You're not going to move to the country. No, no, I'll be staying in Dublin. Uh, well, my kids are in school here and um, so obviously, but I mean, I, I, I think, you know, going back to what Jennifer was saying, I think it does depend a bit on age group you, that you're talking about. I think if you're looking at people like my, my daughter's 18, she is itching to get back out there. And and I suppose not even itching to get back out there, to get out there. She turned 18 during the summer, during the lockdown. So she hasn't really had the joy of going into nightclubs ever yet, you know, and she and her, she and her friends are itching to get out there and start their lives. So um, I, I think I think for them, pubs won't seem icky at all. They're just dying to get into them and um, and enjoy themselves and get into workplaces and get into and to meeting new people and making mistakes and having triumphs and failures and all those things that, you know, make you find out who you are as a person. So, you know, it's be, it's had a different impact on different people. But, yeah, I, th- I think that the, the working from home, um, I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation between employers and employees, because I know in the Irish Times, it's a conversation that we are yet to have with with management. And I think it's going to be interesting because there is a sense and managers have to have the right to manage, you know, that they want to know where people are and what they're doing. And there is that kind of sense of control and that that's no harm to them. That's what's their job to kind of know what's going on. Um, And to seed a bit of that, I think, to uh, to employees and to workers is is a very difficult, uh, frightening, challenging um, thing to to contemplate. But I think people are going to be demanding it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's going to be interesting conversations about how the new normal settles as we go, feel our way through 2021 from a workplace point of view. Felicia, how do you see the, the, the 2021 for people in the arts like yourself who, who need audience engagement to feed off that energy? I think um, we're kind of all adapting really quickly. Uh, we're trying to create situations and spaces where we can invoke the feeling of a live audience and be on a stage or, you know, rent out this place and that place. Recently, I just did, um, I was part of this film that's arts film um, that incorporates all kinds of artists, um, all kinds of musicians. And I'm the only poet there and it was conceptual and they had rented out Jam Park and I had ended up in precarious situation for this video. Um, I don't want to give it away. You'll see it in January. But like, you know, we've started like evoking stage behavior without having an audience. Um, And I think that's what a lot of us actually just need that just being able to get on stage and create that feeling. And that's step one. And I think eventually the audience will catch up to us. So now the creative and artistic industry, we're just 
making films, we're making um, YouTube stuff, we're going live, we're streaming, um, we've become technicians. And so I think we're, we're adapting well enough that we are, we're going to survive because we're here anyway. Um, and people need art more than they realize. So I think we are good on that, um, on, that, uh, on that side of things. What I'm just worried about is that we will lose the audience in terms of not just that we don't get to have an audience in a physical building, but I'm kind of scared that we'll lose an audience um, online too, because, you know, if you're used to receiving art in a certain way um, and you're now more or less saturated with it on one particular platform and it's not kind of spread across timelines or across several platforms, you kind of get uninterested, especially if you're not like a big artist head, you know? Um, so that's probably my biggest worry about the artist, artistic industry. And I'm hoping that um, we find more inventive ways of keeping um, our audience engaged because, you know, when you get about 50 emails that there's a show going on, you're just a bit like, and it's online and you have to log into another Zoom to see it. You're just a bit like, I don't care anymore. And I'm, I'm very worried that we might get there before the vaccine um, releases us. <laughs> you are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously, organic. Chocolate to savour. Jennifer, you've been optimistic enough to book a holiday. Have you booked any actual live gigs? No, I haven't. The only thing that I've booked tickets for for next year is um, a, a theatrical performance, a play called, I think it's called The, the Approaches, uh, which is being staged at the end of January, but I'll be watching it via my laptop uh, from the sitting room, which I have to say has been nice for me. That's been one of the positives because um, I live in Waterford, so I'm not in Dublin, so I don't necessarily have access to a nonstop diet of cultural events. I, that said, there is some wonderful theatre that goes on in the city here in Kilkenny and close by. Uh, but yeah, one of the one of the sort of things that I missed when we made the decision to move here instead of to staying in Dublin was easy access to kind of cultural events. Not that I was going all that often because my family were very young when I was living in Dublin. But um, the start of lockdown kind of coincided with me finally having a built in babysitter at home. And we haven't really been able to take advantage of that because my eldest is 14 now. Uh, because we haven't been able to go out anywhere. So I'm very much looking forward to going out. Uh, but I haven't, I'm not ambitious enough. I've booked flights, but I haven't been ambitious enough to book tickets for um, a live event yet. But that said, I mean, if electric picnic tickets come up or all together now, or I, I do love a festival, so I will be all over that. Kitty, how about you? Have you booked anything? No, I haven't. Um, but, you know, I think, I don't think Felicia needs to worry about people wanting to go back to events. I, I, I think people will really are really dying to go back to events. And there's something very, um, the, the communal joy and experience of being together with people you don't know, at, you know, you've, you've never met them before and you're never going to meet them again. But in this moment, you're sharing this experience of watching a live event of some kind. That's really special. That's really, you know, you can't replicate that. And that's in intoxicating almost, you know, that's why people you sort of feel almost drunk sometimes when they're really enjoying a gig um, or a performance. So, I mean, that's that people will thr throng back for that. And I would think that maybe artists, if they were clever, um, they could uh, or venues or promoters, they could, you know, do the best of both worlds so they could sell the tickets to the live event but also people who are really want to go and see you playing in a theatre in Dublin but live in you know Boston 
they could tune in live for a half price, you know, sell tickets half price, because that has been one of the great things, I suppose, about online events is that, you know, you could have audiences of 2000 at a thing where you would have only had a capacity of, you know, 200 um, in a live venue. So I think actually it could open up things in a big way, but I wouldn't worry about people. People are dying to get back to to, to the well, communal event. Optimistic. Kitty, on a totally different subject, uh, one of the news stories of the past few months has been the, the uh, image-based sexual abuse storm, uh, which did electrify many of us because there was something resonating in there for all women. Um, there's legislation currently going through the doll on that. Is that is is that going to come good in 2021? Do you think? Yeah, I think it will. I I, I think. I mean, with all you know, credit to to Ireland through through this pandemic, the, the government and the guards, I, I think, have really. And I I do wonder has this stemmed from the repeal the eighth referendum, a real kind of focus in this country on women's bodily integrity and women's rights and 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 treating women with respect. Um, and the government really does seem to have, um, at, you know, within the civil service and whichever party's in power has really stepped up to this as, a, as an issue and as, a, as something that Ireland, I think, wants to you know, be a champion on um, and lead the way in many ways um, because we're getting so much right in terms of, you know, our response to domestic violence, um, a new savvy report being done, um, this yeah, the image-based um, sexual abuse um, legislation. Kitty, can I just stop you there? And ex- Would you explain to people what the savvy report is? Because that is terribly important. That was a report done, gosh, I think it was in 2002, a long time ago. Um, It's sexual abuse and violence in Ireland. And it was a huge report. I mean, I have a copy of it. It's like that thick. (laughs) It's really big doorstepper of a report on the extent of sexual abuse and violence in Ireland at the time. And it was really shocking, shocked people when it came out. It found, now I don't quote me on this, but it found sort of like one in three women had experienced some kind of sexual violence if you took it from harassment on the streets up to, you know, serious violence, you know, um, and violence in the home or violence outside the home. And one in five males, I think, had been sexually assaulted or raped. There was a, the figure for, 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 for males was massive as well, I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I mean, if you, ta- if you take um, domestic violence in its sort of, if you define it as, you know, abuse on another person in the home, Men do actually experience it in similar numbers, but the, the power dynamic is so different and the kind of the intimidation is so different that it's it affects women in a much more powerful and intimate way. You know, it's 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 worse for women, put it that way. I'm sure a lot of men would argue with that, but it, it, men do absolutely experience it. They're less likely to report it and probably less traumatized by it perhaps because of the power dynamic is different but um so the savvy report was really important and um none has been done since and there has been a commitment now finally after years and years of lobbying for another one that one has been committed to i think it's been carried out by the cso and it's going to cost sort of like a two million or something two or three million to do so it's an expensive undertaking but it's it's there's recognition that it's really important that it's a huge issue and we to get, need to get to grips with it we need data hugely important now felicia i'm going to put this to you because you have direct experience of it uh, which is uh, direct provision and a sense that there was some momentum towards getting rid of it finally um this year. Do you think something is going to happen next year or are we still on some kind of a sort of slow movement to nowhere? I think, I think we're still on the uh, information part of 
the movement. I think a lot of people still don't know what direct provision is or how it impacts people's lives. Perception of themselves and the, their community, the people where they come from, and how they integrate into a new society. So I don't think that, I don't think direct provision is going anywhere next year. In fact, they were I think they were proposing that it would be gone by twenty twenty three, but they're literally still building um, four new centers for next year. So, um, yeah, it's not going anywhere. It's disappointingly so, and I think we are going to have to spend a lot of time just informing people about what it is and quite frankly making them care I, I think it's going to be a making people care situation um and this year and the rise and the momentum um myself and a couple of artists designed t-shirts and sold 750 of them and gave the proceeds to messiah.org who um work with direct provision centers and work with direct, um, people in direct provision to you know help them have better lives and also try and lobby for better for them um so that's basically what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to do the best I can to not just speak about it, but to actively lend help and lend a hand. And the purpose of these T-shirts, most of all, was one, to kind of like put an image in people's heads. Because, for instance, the Mosley Centre used to be um, a holiday centre and that a lot of people, a lot of Irish people remember growing up. Um, that was quite surprising to me because I didn't know what it used to be. I just... My complete knowledge of Mosny was direct provision, so I was quite surprised that it used to be a place of fun. <laughs> I thought that was quite ironic, um, and suddenly that it's used to more or less imprison people of color. Now it's now people don't even know what it is used for or what it means anymore. So we were quite deliberate in kind of making sure people made that connection, and then secondly, quite deliberate in making sure that. People got information at the back of the T-shirts, whether and every T-shirt was different. So having information about how it started, how it's funded, um, the impact of um, um, direct provision on mental health, on their culture and things of that nature. Um, and also just a poem as well on the back of the T-shirts. And I've also found that people care more about charity if they're getting something out of it. And that's just humans. Um, and it's just it's just a smart way of being like, OK, you know what? Yeah, not everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give money to charity. You can't get that out of everybody. But a T-shirt that's pretty, they might buy it. That's <laughs> Jennifer, looking ahead, and I'm sure you're just dying for a break. You don't want to talk about what work you're going to do in 2021. But have you any, are there any stories that you're, you, you've got a BDI on already at this stage? I mean, I suppose the vaccine rollout, as we were talking about earlier on, is going to be a big story, whether or not uh, we want to talk about it. Um, the B word is definitely back. Um, you know, whether or not that's resolved by the end of the year, Brexit obviously being the, the B word. Um, I, I would actually, funny enough, got myself quite nostalgic uh, yes. recently thinking about the fact that this time a year ago, I was trailing around Northern England and Hull and places like that, talking to people um, ahead of the UK election. So I think those kind of stories will come back. I hope things that I hope will be on the agenda next year might be how we value work and the way that we value work. You know, I think a lot of people were really astonished to learn that student nurses weren't getting paid um, for the work that they do. And I think, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted that there is this schism in society between the people who have the luxury of doing the remote work that we're all able to do and the people that have to go out on the front line 
um, and work. And there is a correlation in, in education and in income terms as well. That Generally speaking, it's not true across the board, but generally speaking, the people who are working um, at home remotely are probably better paid as well. Uh, and the people who are working on the front line are in lower paid jobs and, and are more vulnerable. Um, and I think we just really need to think about that. You know, why is it that somebody who works for a multinational tech company deserves to be paid maybe three times what a senior nurse on the front line in a hospital is paid. I would like to see us having uh, that conversation, but I'm not sure that it will. Um, and I think there'll just be other hangovers from what we've been through, not just next year, but for the next few years. And I'm not talking about debt hangovers, although that will be an issue for the people who write about economics. Um, but I think the mental health issue is going to be a huge one. We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, I think, of the mental health impacts of lockdowns and financial worries and financial insecurities. Uh, and then just the other ways in which COVID has divided us as a society between the people who've emerged, actually, quite a large proportion of us have emerged financially stronger in a better position with more savings this year. One economist I was speaking to recently estimated that uh, that could be about 80, 85 percent of people are financially better off at the end of this year. But then there's the 15 percent who were ticking along nicely, running a small business, you know, going out to work every day uh, and who suddenly had the rug pulled out from under them when they were forced to close down. Um, and are now financially in a in a much more difficult position. So there's all kinds of redressing of balances that need to be done. And yeah. hopefully in those conversations, we can emerge with a better, more equitable model for the kind of society that we want to be. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 what you're talking about sort of reaches into so many, many areas of rural Ireland. I mean, some of the towns, as you well know, are practically dead. And it's it's such a very sad sight. So I hope all of that becomes becomes part of our, our national conversation. Kitty, what about you? Are, you? are you too tired to think about what might happen next year? Or is it a lot of what Jennifer is saying there will, will fall yeah, into your bailiwick? I mean, I think what I mean, we're talking about how we, as I was saying earlier, about how you know, the government and services have stepped up to re- respond to the domestic violence issue that, you know, they've also stepped up to um, ensure to get to get as many homeless people off the streets as possible to stop you know evictions happening in a big way to uh, fund services for um, for, for uh, vulnerable groups um, better and that sort of thing. And I think one thing that we I would like to see us talking about and discussing would be how you know. W- keeping that going and you know we were able to do it we were able to do things like provide um oh they, they provide met say for, for for addicts provide methadone maintenance where they live you know so they wouldn't have to be going out to the you know so investing in solutions that make lives better and easier and better to manage so i would i i, I would hope that we could be talking about keeping that kind of momentum up and this may sound sort of trite and everything, but, you know, I think we have found a sort of sense of uh, community and a sense of, you know, thinking about people who are worse off than us and people who are not as well paid. And as Jennifer is saying, those conversations about, you know, what, what, what do we really value? I wouldn't be hugely optimistic that we're going to have huge political change as a result of this, these kind of conversations. But I think it's very valuable that we start to have them and we start to think about how could we be doing things better? And I do think that there's a lot of pent up thinking about all that going on. And we are going to see that that 
that come forward and sort of hopefully kind of explode onto agendas where we we do things differently, whether it's the way we deliver services to the very vulnerable or the way we run our cities or the way we manage, uh, you know, respond to people in crisis and women and children in crisis and how we think about, you know, protecting them and and just doing things better. So in some ways, it's going to be a very, in many ways, it's going to be a very interesting year and we hope in a good way from that point of view. Um, we, we just we have very little time, but just enough time to ask you, starting with you, Jennifer, what are your hopes for next year? What are you looking forward to most? Um, oh, it's such a trite answer, but I am really looking forward to, to getting on a plane. I will definitely be wearing a mask when, when I get on a plane, but I, I just really want to feel the sun on my back. And, you know, I think it's really more about the feeling of being on holidays, that kind of carefree feeling that you're out of your normal life and you're out of your normal routine. I think that's been hard this year to keep it going because, you know, everything happens at home now. We're working at home. We're socialising at home uh, to the extent that we're socialising at all. We're socialising with our family members at home and um, we're eating out at home. So it'll just be lovely to leave it behind me and and be somewhere else and step outside myself. Um, and I'm looking forward to reporting on the road again instead of from behind a desk. I've missed that a lot. Uh, and, you know, I just I'd really like to be able to just go down the road to my local pub and have a pint. I don't even drink pints, but I'm craving going down and having a nice <laughs> pint of IPA or something. I think we completely get that. Yes, I have this vision of sitting in a in a cafe in a normal way with a newspaper and a big mm. fat coffee and not having to worry about anything around me. Felicia, what about you? Are you looking are you looking ahead with excitement to 2021? What are you looking forward to? Um, I'm hoping also to be able to get on the plane. Yeah, yeah. I'm robbing Jennifer's one because I really, really, I really miss holidays. Um, also miss the combination of working um, abroad. Like, um, and I felt like that was kind of taken off for me in, in the past year or so um, before lockdown. And it ruined all my traveling work plans. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping to be able to like perform abroad again and have that combination of holiday and, and work. I really like that. Um, and just to look into a crowd and see just a sardine stacked sweaty <laughs> group of people. That's what I want. <laughs> oh, oh, the excitement of that. Kitty, what about you in your, um, in your lovely contentment? I am looking forward to being one of those sweaty sardines, actually. Um, that, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, for all my saying, I'm very content sitting here with my uh, telly and my gin and tonic and everything. I am I am dying to go out to a gig. I'd like, you know, in Whelan's or, you know, it's a small, the Olympia or somewhere. Oh, um, yeah. And I suppose I'm looking forward to kind of feeling my way back to whatever comes you know we don't know what it's going to be like I mean I like the working from home but I'd like to see this colleagues I haven't seen since March I'd, I'd like to see my colleagues again and I'm kind of wondering how I'm going to feel as well I mean I think I was watching that program that wonderful documentary on the famine and there was a um, they were talking in it about in the in the, with the years after the famine how people used to gather in each other's houses and just sit in silence they were so shell-shocked by you know where they had all met and danced and sang together before the famine and I kind of wonder how are we going to be like I'm you know I'm wondering if when I go when I see my dad for the first time am I going to cry I'm not expecting to cry but I might I don't know you know so I think there's lots of things happening in in our interior lives that we don't even really know yet and I'm kind of cautiously excited, nervous about what all that's going to be like. So it'll be, I think it's going to be a really interesting year for, for personally and professionally for everyone. I find myself choking up at a photograph yesterday on Twitter of somebody who, who sent a picture of, of their, one of their parents being vaccinated. 
And I really felt a sense of high emotion because that the person who yeah. sent the picture was as well. So that for me is the, the, the current symbol of hope. And you, you three in your, in your different ways are also full of hope as far as I can see and energy and looking forward and hoping for new conversations or for something to actually come out of them this time. Jennifer O'Connell, Felicia and Kitty, thank you so much for joining in the Women's Podcast. And we hope to see lots of you in 2021. Thank you. In person. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Cathy. Happy New Year. Thanks very much to all our panellists, Jennifer O'Connell, Kitty Holland and Felicia, Olasania, and to our host, Cathy Sheridan. The podcast was produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and also find us on social at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.